Welcome back to the Insurance versus History podcast. I'm Meredith Brasher, your writer and host, and I'm excited to dive into more episodes where I examine how insurance has changed history and sometimes how it failed to change history, even when it really, really tried. I have both a bachelor's and master's degree in history, and for almost 20 years, I worked in the insurance industry, underwriting liability exposures for everything from paranormal investigators to the world's top 500 companies. Do you want to know how history happened? Insurance can help. Today I'm talking about an insurance scandal from 2005, and a man who most people remember for a reason completely different than insurance, Elliot Spitzer. He's most famous for being elected governor of New York in 2006, and resigning just two years later after it was revealed he had been paying an escort service. But even though that's what he's remembered for, his legacy is a bit more lasting. Do you know the current Attorney General of New York's name? Letitia James? Do you know the name of the attorney general of your state? I didn't remember mine, but when asked about the AG of New York, I knew immediately it was Letitia James. And part of the reason that I know her name is because of Elliot Spitzer. Spitzer really took the role of the New York attorney general to new levels by making them an enforcer to be reckoned with nationwide. Spitzer targeted industries like banking, Wall Street, and even insurance. And it's this insurance investigation I want to talk about today. In 2004, Spitzer upended the insurance industry by investigating industry practices and illegal activity within insurance brokers and insurance companies. And what he found resulted in $3 billion paid out in penalties and restitution and 20 people charged with crimes. When all this happened, I was working in the insurance industry as an underwriter, but I wasn't involved with the big three brokers at all you can go your entire career without really working with them. As I moved into larger accounts, though, I got to know them well. And what happened in 2004 highlighted some real issues within the industry that amazingly aren't resolved today. This isn't a story about how a man made some bad decisions about his personal life. This is a story about how companies within the insurance industry get paid. And it's a story about a man trying to untangle a pretty intentionally secretive industry that is all tangled up in each other. It's also a story about how employees get screwed and the higher-ups walk away and how all those higher-ups are related and how all of that is bad for the industry. I learned a lot, and I hope you will, too. Spitzer was one of those guys who had a leg up from the very beginning. He was born in 1959 to a father who was a well-off New York real estate developer with a reputation for encouraging heated debate during family dinners. Spitzer was a prep school kid, graduating high school from Horace Mann, a school in the Bronx known for high levels of Ivy League admission. He spent his undergraduate years at Princeton and then attended Harvard Law School in the 80s, where he was close friends with Elena Kagan, now a Supreme Court justice, and worked with Alan Dershowitz on the appeal for Klaus von Bülow. In the movie Reversal of Fortune, the Spitzer character is played by Felicity Huffman. I've never figured out why that was. Maybe the writers thought the movie needed some female law students, but I imagine that was pretty disappointing to someone like Spitzer, who certainly loved publicity. After graduating from law school, he started as an associate at a well-regarded law firm called Paul Weiss. After only about two years, he left that for a job at the Manhattan DA's office. The DA's office paid a pittance, but was the kind of learning environment anyone interested in eventually pursuing high-powered law jobs and politics, loved. Under Manhattan DA Robert Morgenthau, Spitzer began to develop his own philosophy about how the law worked. 
in particular how to get things done practically and successfully. Working with the head of the Organized Crime Division, Michael Cherkasky, Spitzer worked on one case in particular that would shape the direction of his prosecutorial life forever. Thomas and Joseph Gambino were brothers connected to the Gambino crime family. Their business was trucking, and the two Gambino brothers had a stranglehold on trucking between the New York Fashion District and the locations in Chinatown where clothing was made. The Manhattan DA's office wanted to prosecute them, but struggled to find the kind of evidence they needed for a good case. The Gambinos were very good at making sure they didn't get caught breaking any laws. In a move that would become a Spitzer trademark, the DA prosecuted the Gambinos not just on extortion and something called enterprise corruption, but on an antitrust charge based on 19th century New York law. It was this use of old New York law that gave Spitzer a lot of ideas he would use later in the New York Attorney General's office. The case went to trial, but before it could go to a jury, the Manhattan DA made a deal with the Gambino brothers. The Gambinos would serve no jail time, but would plead guilty, pay a $12 million fine, and most importantly, quit the trucking business. This changed the entire trucking industry in New York, and in Spitzer's view, was a better outcome than just putting the Gambino brothers in prison. Convicting the bad guys was great, yeah, but so was remaking the world. And Spitzer started to see that that was sometimes more important than putting the bad guys in jail. After six years, he left the Manhattan DA's office for private practice again, but just a year later decided to run for the New York Attorney General's office. This wasn't a surprise. At Harvard, he had focused on public policy, and most people expected him to eventually enter politics. He thought he could make a big impact as attorney general, bigger than he ever could in the Manhattan DA's office. He wanted to take on the big guys, especially Wall Street. Even though he lost the 94 primary, he wasn't deterred. In the meantime, he and a friend, Lloyd Constantine, started their own law firm. Constantine knew Spitzer would likely run in the next election, which was something he supported. Spitzer spent the time before the next election working and also building up his potential base for a 98 run. That effort paid off because in 1998 he was elected attorney general. Although the race was close, in fact, the dispute over a handful of votes went on for a while. Now Spitzer had a way to take those lessons he learned at the Manhattan DA's office and apply them to the entire state, and in some cases, the entire country. Luckily for him, there were a lot of people who wanted to work with him, and he was able to build a team of smart young lawyers who were ready to take on the challenge. One of the unique things about the New York attorney general, as opposed to attorney generals in other states, is that New York law allows much broader rights to the attorney general to go after offenders and prosecute them, particularly those people and organizations accused of financial crime. In particular, New York has something called the Martin Act, a law from the 1920s, which is considered perhaps the broadest antitrust law in the country. The Martin Act gives the AG a lot of power to investigate financial fraud. Normally, if an attorney general or a federal agent subpoenas companies or people for information, they have to indicate whether or not they intend to bring criminal or civil charges and indicate to the entities they're subpoenaing exactly what they're investigating. They also have to have probable cause to subpoena documents from a company. The New York AG doesn't have to do any of that. The AG can just request whatever they want and not provide much or any information in return. If this sounds like the AG can just go phishing in a company's emails, that's what it sounds like to me too. 
A legal expert called the Martin Act Spitzer's Excalibur, referencing the infamous sword of King Arthur. Spitzer, of course, also brought his legal philosophy with him to the New York AG's office. He brought a belief that if federal agencies wouldn't do their job to enforce the law, he would do it for them. It was true that during the 80s and 90s, Republican presidencies and legislatures had dismantled a lot of the power that federal agencies had to enforce regulations and laws. Spitzer asserted that this meant the state was able to step in and prosecute, and he clearly meant to take on that role. Spitzer started strong in his role as attorney general and didn't let up. In the years after his election, he targeted polluters, eventually forcing the EPA to enforce existing laws, and gun manufacturers, but his main focus quickly became Wall Street. His basic strategy was to find an area of finance, like mutual funds or investment banking, where there was some standard practice shrouded in secrecy, start sending out subpoenas for information, find some illegal or bad behavior that was damning, and then publicly release that information to the press and use the public upset to force the industry to change. He loved to go after industry practices that fell into a kind of gray area. Not immediately and obviously illegal, but questionable, and investigate them until he found something that could be prosecuted. His work made him popular with New York residents who saw him as taking on the fat cats, and not so popular with the financial industry, no surprise. But that popularity led him to re-election as attorney general in 98 and again in 2002. Many of the industries and companies he went after were based on tips he received, sometimes even anonymously. In March of 2004, Spitzer's office received an envelope with no return address that included an unsigned letter suggesting he look into an insurance broker named Marsh and McLennan. The letter indicated that Marsh may have made recent changes to its policies and accounting as a result of Spitzer's attacks on other non-insurance companies. The letter specifically mentioned directed revenue sharing, which was terminology describing something that Spitzer had targeted with his investigations into Wall Street. No one in the attorney general's office had thought about looking into companies in the insurance industry for this, and no one in the office knew anything about insurance. One of their lawyers went to a library to find a book about insurance so they could understand the business and passed it around the office. This revenue sharing the letter referred to is something the industry commonly calls contingent commissions. Sometimes it's also referred to by names like partner service agreements or broker service agreements. But in my experience, those particular terms refer to the contracts that lay out not only contingent commission agreements, but can also include other agreed terms between an insurance company and a broker. While this anonymous letter sparked the curiosity of Spitzer and his team, this wasn't the first time concerns about contingent commissions had come up within the industry. Back in 98, the Risk and Insurance Management Society, a professional group made up of risk managers, brought up issues with contingent commissions. Risk managers are people who deal with risk within individual companies, and they're often the people inside those same companies who decide on insurance coverage, so their opinion matters. A year later, the issue was dropped after Risk and Insurance Management Society made a deal with Marsh and another large broker, Aon, to disclose additional information about contingent commissions and which insurance companies were paying them to brokers. A month before Spitzer got the letter, an industry group called the Washington Legal Foundation contacted several states' attorney generals, including Spitzer, 
about the issue of contingent commissions and asked those attorney generals to investigate. Again, nothing seems to have been done. I think that an anonymous letter might have been more scandalous than a large industry group asking for help, but for sure, the suggestion that the insurance industry had some issue with revenue sharing fits Spitzer's M.O. Insurance can be an industry very difficult for outsiders to understand. It was an obscure and complicated issue and something that was considered an industry standard, and the New York AG thought it fell into a gray area of potential illegality. Plus, it was an industry that wasn't well regulated by the federal government. That's because the regulation of insurance falls to the states. In theory, the state insurance commissioners should have been investigating this, but they weren't, as far as I can tell. It was a perfect fit for Spitzer's legal worldview. Since Marsh and McLennan, who I will hereafter refer to as Marsh, were mentioned in the anonymous letter, that was where Spitzer started. The question he and his team wanted to answer was, was Marsh making business decisions for customers based on contingent commissions rather than the customer's best interest? The real issue at hand was how insurance companies and brokers get paid. In the United States, we use an intermediary system to sell most insurance. This means you're not directly interacting with the insurance company to buy your insurance. While there are some direct insurance companies, typically businesses do not have the option of going directly to an insurance company. They use an intermediary. There are two main types of insurance intermediaries in the United States, agents and brokers. The line between the two can be a bit blurry, and it's also the case that the terminology gets swapped around a lot, referring to agents as brokers and vice versa. But generally speaking, an insurance agent is someone who has contracts with several different insurance companies and has a financial relationship with those insurance companies. When you talk to a State Farm agent, for example, they aren't an employee of State Farm. They're an independent contractor who has a contract to sell State Farm insurance. In a way, their customer is actually the insurance company, not you. If they don't bring in enough business or the policies they write have a lot of claims, which result in financial loss to the insurance company, that insurance agent may lose their contract with State Farm, and then they can no longer sell State Farm insurance. Larger independent agents may have contracts with more than one insurance company, so they have several options to choose from when placing insurance for a customer, but the issues remain the same. They are expected to provide all of the insurance companies they represent a certain amount of business every year and to keep losses within a reasonable threshold. An insurance broker, on the other hand, does not represent any insurance company. Typically, brokers deal with more sophisticated, larger businesses. While the insurance agent may provide some advice to the individual buying insurance, the insurance broker provides more than advice. They may provide risk management services, claim services, and a whole host of other services to the clients they represent. I like to think of it more like hiring a consultant than an insurance agent. Unlike insurance agents who have to have some kind of contract with the insurance companies they represent, a broker can approach any insurance company it likes, though they do typically stay within a standard bubble of larger insurance companies. In theory, their goal is to get the best terms and conditions for their customer from the insurance company. While they aren't considered a fiduciary, though there's certainly been a lot of court cases about whether or not they have fiduciary responsibilities, they are considered to have more of a duty towards their customers than an insurance agent does. 
there are significantly fewer brokers in the insurance industry than there are insurance agents, and the big brokers tend to be located in major cities like New York or Chicago. The three biggest brokers are Marsh, Aon, and Willis. Both insurance agents and brokers get paid commission on policies they write with insurance companies. It ranges from 2% to 15%, and it's paid by the insurance company. In addition, brokers may also charge the customer a fee directly for any service they provide. But that's not the only way brokers can get paid. Contingent commissions are the best-known way, though there are others I'll discuss later. A contingent commission typically has two components. Brokers are paid at the end of the year by the insurance company based on the amount of business they have placed with that particular insurance company. This is generally a percentage, maybe 2 to 7.5% of the total premium. Brokers may also receive money based on how well the policies they placed with a particular insurance company have performed. Have the risks they placed been good for the insurance company, or did they result in large losses? By paying a commission based on an entire book of business rather than on individual accounts, this type of payment has generally not been disclosed to clients. This is because the brokers usually complain that breaking out contingent commissions by account to disclose it to the individual customers was just too hard to figure out. And since they didn't know what it would be anyway until the end of the year, it was also inaccurate. Contingent commissions have been around for a very long time, but they became more common in the 1990s. And while not every broker uses them, enough did that Spitzer thought it could be a potential area for investigation. Spitzer's team believed they could find evidence that the big insurance brokers like Marsh were steering customers towards the insurance companies that paid Marsh the most in contingent commissions. So, if an insurance company paid less for contingent commissions, or they did not pay contingent commissions at all, the broker would deliberately place less business with them. If that process hurt the customer, then that could be illegal. So Spitzer started subpoenaing insurance brokers within a month of receiving the anonymous letter. He started with Marsh, asking for emails and documents regarding contingent commissions. The amount of money Marsh received from insurance companies via contingent commissions was about $800 million, on a total profit of $1.5 billion. There was a lot of money at stake. Marsh's general counsel, William Rossoff, presented himself in Spitzer's office a few days after the subpoena was issued to discuss the request. From my reading, it seems like Rossoff's plan was to calm Spitzer's team down. He didn't meet with, directly with Spitzer that day. Rossoff asserted that contingent commissions were legal, that everyone in the industry had them, and that it was simply the way business was done in insurance. That there was a so-called Chinese wall between the brokers who were placing business and the employees who negotiated the contingent commissions with the insurance companies, so there was no conflict of interest. I really, really hate that term, Chinese wall, for a lot of reasons. It dates from the 20s and obviously refers to the Great Wall of China. It's supposed to mean that there is some kind of virtual wall that keeps information being shared in a company between departments, usually used when there's some conflict of interest. No one seems to understand that, in reality, historically speaking, the Great Wall of China only worked one way. But anyway, when asked about insurance companies who didn't sign an agreement providing for contingent commissions with Marsh, the general counsel shrugged and said, well, perhaps they would just get less business from Marsh, as if that was no big deal. He also seemed to suggest that 
Spitzer just didn't understand the insurance industry. If you wanted to put a red flag in front of Spitzer and his team, using the phrase Chinese wall, something the financial service companies and Wall Street had used when Spitzer investigated them, and something that turned out to be incredibly untrue, that would have done it. Then suggesting that insurance companies who didn't sign an agreement for contingent commissions wouldn't get as much business as those who did, that seemed like pay-to-play for Spitzer. And then suggesting that Spitzer's team didn't understand the insurance industry probably sealed the deal. Spitzer's team formulated a plan. They were looking for something called steering by detriment, examples of where Marsh's decision to place business with a particular insurance company resulted in harm to the customer. This was illegal and something Marsh could be criminally prosecuted for. They also decided to expand the hunt for evidence by also expanding the scope of their investigation. They sent subpoenas to the other two of the big three brokers, Willis and Aon. Eventually, they would also subpoena A.J. Gallagher, another broker, and a handful of other brokers. They also sent subpoenas to some insurance companies, thinking there might be information in their emails that would support Spitzer's suspicions. Aon, one of the big three brokers, responded quite quickly by, of course, asserting that contingent commissions were legal, but also that they were more than willing to disclose more to their customers about what contingent commissions were being paid. To me, this seems like Aon knew there might be a problem with their documentation, which proved to be true. Within the subpoenaed emails, there was an email from an executive at Aon talking about a contingent commission contract they had just signed with Zurich Insurance. The Aon executive stated in the email they were going to begin to aggressively use Zurich because of it. This suggested there might be more egregious and illegal information in Aon's emails. So Aon hired outside counsel, one Lloyd Constantine, you know, the man that Spitzer had formed a law firm with in 1994. Surprise. Willis also responded quickly. The Willis CEO was a man named Joseph J. Plumeri, and he wasn't from the insurance industry. He was actually from finance, and he'd been head of Willis for only a few years. After he joined Willis, he had worked with his general counsel, a man named William Bowden, to establish a strong compliance and legal department within Willis to make the company, as he said, bulletproof. He told Spitzer's team that they would completely stop contingent commissions on small and mid-sized clients. He also suggested that Willis would gladly comply with an industry-wide ban. Marsh, however, apparently took the position that, again, Spitzer's team didn't understand insurance and that the investigation was wasting their time and everyone's money. It was not a good look for Marsh, and certainly a bad position to take with a man who had no issue putting companies on blast in the public arena. However, they did take it seriously enough to hire an outside law firm, specifically bringing on a lawyer named Carrie Dunn, who was a classmate of Spitzer's at Harvard Law. This type of decision, bringing in someone Spitzer already knew, happened over and over again in this investigation. I suspect to some extent Marsh's size and scope contributed to what was kind of a belligerent response to everything Spitzer did. At that time, Marsh was responsible for placing about 40% of corporate America's insurance. Willis and Aon were nowhere near as large, and perhaps that's partly why they were more conciliatory. Marsh's general counsel did his best to placate Spitzer, conceding in early August that well, maybe they did have some issues with steering, sure, and that 
whole Chinese wall thing maybe didn't work so well after all, but tried to explain to Spitzer that Marsh never deliberately steered business to an insurance company unless the competing quotes with other insurance companies were apples to apples, in which case the customer suffered no harm. Not surprisingly, Spitzer's team didn't buy this one bit. They started to think not only about what brokers might be doing to place business with insurance companies based on contingent commissions, but also about how the brokers might be pressuring insurance companies directly on other things. Specifically, if brokers were placing more business with insurance companies that were using those same brokers to place reinsurance for those insurance companies. I've talked about this in other episodes, but insurance companies buy insurance too from other insurance companies. Mostly this comes in the form of something called reinsurance, which very simply is a backstop in case an insurance company's losses become too large. This allows the insurance company to share the risk of their potential losses with other insurance companies. How do these insurance companies buy this insurance? Through brokers, of course. In addition, Spitzer's team found a memo that was damning. That insurance companies working with Marsh were being asked to provide insurance quotes for customers that were artificially inflated. So basically, Marsh might present three quotes to a customer. The best-priced quote was the one that Marsh wanted to bind because it gave them the best contingent commission dollars. The other two quotes were extremely high, so the customer naturally picked the quote that Marsh wanted them to pick. This came awfully close to collusion, bid rigging, and price fixing, all illegal in New York. This made Spitzer's team even more sure they wanted to start focusing on Marsh specifically. In September, two insurance companies, Ace and AIG, told Spitzer's team they had been involved in this business of creating artificially inflated quotes. Marsh would tell AIG what price to charge for accounts that AIG had written in prior years and were up for renewal. And as long as AIG was able to meet that price, Marsh would keep the business with them. This process usually involved getting other insurance companies to provide what Marsh called B quotes, again, a quote that was deliberately higher than AIG's A quote. What's interesting here is that while it's not unusual for quotes from insurance companies to vary widely on the same customer, that happens all the time. In most cases, the insurance companies providing the B quotes weren't providing legitimate quotes, just a premium number and some policy terms without a full risk assessment and all that entails. The B insurance companies knew they would not get the business and that the favor would be returned down the line. AIG said they did this more than once by providing those B quotes on other accounts when Marsh asked. Ace, the other insurance company that spoke up, said they had provided B quotes on a particular account, Fortune Brands. When Ace apparently waffled about providing a B quote to Marsh, the broker at Marsh said in an email that, quote, I do not want to hear you are not doing B quotes or we will not bind anything. While the investigation started by focusing on brokers and the insurance companies played as if they were being pushed by brokers to do these things, it wasn't quite a clear cut as that. In fact, some insurance companies had taken the position that if contingent commissions were going to be a way of life, then they were going to do whatever they could to make sure they got the most amount of business they could out of them. In some cases, the legality of that was fuzzy. Emails between Marsh and Chubb, an insurance company, suggested that Chubb had paid Marsh a million dollars extra to keep Marsh from taking Chubb's renewals to market that year. In the meantime, Spitzer's team was still finding incriminating emails. 
In the case of a school construction insurance policy for Greenville, South Carolina, Marsh asked CNA Insurance to provide B quotes to contrast with an A quote they had in hand from Zurich Insurance, saying, quote, I want to present a CNA program that's reasonably competitive, but will not be a winner. When CNA refused, the broker at Marsh made up a fake quote, said it was from CNA, and presented it to the client. When Spitzer's team followed up with Marsh, they were faced with a bit of a conundrum. On the one hand, Marsh was often prone to behave towards them in a way Spitzer's team felt like it was stonewalling. On the other hand, Marsh had been trying to investigate these accusations in-house as a result of Spitzer's inquiries, and what was clear from that investigation was that Marsh's internal controls were an absolute mess. Marsh didn't have a global compliance officer, and what internal controls they had in place weren't being overseen. Emails were deleted. Documents weren't managed properly. It came down to whether or not people within Marsh were willing to come forward and talk about steering and all those other issues Spitzer believed he had found. The problem was that most of the executives they talked to didn't think they'd done anything to break the law. Again, it was just the way business was done in the insurance industry. Spitzer, for his part, was sort of done with Marsh. And since he couldn't pin these issues at this point on any particular higher level unit or individual, he decided that the head of Marsh should take responsibility for all these problems. In October of 2004, he held a press conference where he announced he was suing Marsh in civil court and he was seriously considering bringing criminal charges against Marsh. The idea of bringing criminal charges was devastating. It can mean the death knell for a company. His opinion was that the CEO of Marsh was, quote, not a leadership I will talk with. It is not a leadership I will negotiate with. This was a big move. To state publicly he would not talk with the Marsh CEO at all. The suggestion was that the CEO needed to be replaced with someone else before Spitzer would consider dropping the idea of criminal charges. Spitzer also said that if Marsh, quote, wants a settlement that permits survival, a threshold demonstration of reform means transition to new leadership. The Marsh CEO was Jeffrey Greenberg, and this was no small thing. Jeffrey is one of the sons of AIG CEO Maurice Greenberg, also known as Hank Greenberg. Jeffrey had started at Marsh and was there a few years in the 70s, before moving to AIG where he worked under his father for 17 years in various executive roles. He moved back to Marsh in 1996 where he became CEO a few years later. So here you have a person whose father runs the largest insurance company in the world who worked at that insurance company and now works at a broker who has a relationship with that company. By the way, those insurance companies that came forward to Spitzer with information about those B quotes, Ace and AIG Insurance, AIG, of course, was headed by Maurice Greenberg, Jeffrey's dad. Ace's head at the time was Evan Greenberg. He is also the son of Maurice Greenberg. Eben worked for AIG for 25 years, eventually becoming chief operating officer before leaving to take the CEO role at ACE in 2000. I just thought I'd mention that. For Jeffrey Greenberg, he had no intention of leaving Marsh, but Spitzer's public damning of Marsh was to the point where Marsh was seeing significant stock price decreases, like 40%, and it was making the board very antsy. Jeffrey Greenberg tried to placate Spitzer, and perhaps he also believed that what had been done was wrong. I'm not sure. 
By firing the head of Marsh's global brokerage group, where most of the B-quote business appeared to have come from. Almost more importantly than firing that executive, the replacement he chose for that role was a man named Michael Cherkasky. Ring any bells? Cherkasky had been the head of the organized crime division at the Manhattan DA's office, the man Spitzer had worked with to bring down the Gambino trucking operation. It just so happened Marsh had purchased a security company Cherkasky had built a few years before, and so Cherkasky had joined Marsh as an employee. Cherkasky had no insurance experience at all, but what he had was Spitzer experience. Marsh, ACE, and AIG, all companies headed by Greenbergs, said publicly they would no longer participate in contingent commissions, but it was just too late for Marsh's board. Jeffrey Greenberg was forced to resign. His replacement as Marsh's CEO? Prepare to be shocked. Michael Cherkasky. And nothing more was said about criminally prosecuting Marsh. I can only imagine how mad Maurice Greenberg was about his son getting booted from Marsh, but he had his own problems. In the course of the investigation, Spitzer's team had hit on some issues with AIG that were not quite related to the issues of contingent commission and steering or bid rigging. They were issues that involved something called finite insurance. Finite insurance is a kind of insurance that insurance companies buy to protect themselves, but it's a little more complicated than reinsurance. Based on Spitzer's understanding about how a couple of large finite insurance deals went down, he believed that AIG was using this finite reinsurance to cook their books. The blowback from this, an investigation that went on long after the contingent commission issue was settled, and even after Spitzer had resigned as governor, deserves its own episode. But I bring it up because I think it explains partly why Maurice Greenberg didn't put up more of a stink about the contingent commission issue. On the other hand, no insurance company likes paying out more money than they have to, so ending contingent commissions meant AIG would no longer have to pay that money to the brokers. FYI, Maurice Greenberg's lawyer in all this mess? David Boys. Yes, the lawyer who was also involved in the Twin Towers insurance dispute. And the same lawyer who defended Theranos and represented Al Gore in the Supreme Court case Bush v. Gore. I think I might have to start calling him a friend of the pod. He just keeps popping up. The loss of stock price for Marsh, that 40% drop, was something that all the other brokers were also experiencing, if not at such a high rate. All of them wanted to put this behind them quickly. And since Spitzer's MO was typically to focus on financial penalties and industry changes rather than prosecuting specific people, they quickly settled on terms. Marsh, of course, was the problem child. Cherkasky wanted to settle, but the board had started having second thoughts. And it seems that while they wanted Cherkasky, in part because of his relationship with Spitzer, it seems that the same relationship was a problem when it came to setting a penalty number. Not even a year after that anonymous letter showed up at Spitzer's office, all three big brokers, Marsh, Ann, and Willis, agreed to a 10-year suspension on contingent commissions in 2005. Marsh agreed to an $850 million penalty to be paid out to customers. Aon settled at $190 million. Willis settled at $51 million. Several small brokers also settled for lesser amounts, but they got to keep taking contingent commissions, unlike the big three brokers. A handful of large insurance companies, Zurich and AIG among them, also settled for significant amounts. 
Now, keep in mind, that was just in New York. At this point, other attorney generals in other states had seen what Spitzer was doing, and a number of them had opened their own investigations. While Jeffrey Greenberg and the heads of other companies got off without criminal charges, 20 people who worked at the brokers and the insurance companies were either charged criminally or accepted guilty pleas as a result of the scandal. Spitzer's team saw it as a big win. The industry felt differently. But Spitzer already had his eye on his next prize, governor of New York. So, are contingent commissions bad? One of the arguments the brokers and insurance companies used with Spitzer about contingent commissions is that this type of compensation is not unusual for non-insurance businesses. I'm sure there are many industries where selling a lot of particular product results in an end-of-year bonus. But what duty do those other industries have to their end buyer? Are their customers the manufacturers of that product or the people who buy the product? The consolidation of brokers in the 90s was part of the problem. By the end of the 90s, there were only three big brokers in the United States because they had gobbled up a lot of the other smaller brokers. The amount of market control these brokers had gave them a lot of power over insurance companies and customers that wouldn't have existed if there were 15 to 20 large brokers in the market. When one broker is placing 40% of all corporate business in the United States, an insurance company can start to feel pressured to agree to whatever the broker wants to get access to that business. It can feel a lot like pay-to-play for a lot of people. Brokers, of course, have a lot of reasons why receiving money from insurance companies via contingent commissions is fine. Brokers will tell you they provide services to the insurance company by acting as the intermediary, like putting together all the company's information in a way that is easy for the insurance company to understand. Brokers provide risk management analysis that the insurance company doesn't have to provide, therefore saving the insurance company money. They also do some of the more onerous administrative tasks like issuing certificates of insurance. So many certificates of insurance. Brokers can also provide claims handling, which doesn't replace the claims handling if the insurance company just supplements it. The problem is is that the claims handling done by a broker will probably always favor the client and not the insurance company. While I might argue that the scope of the services they provide insurance companies is not quite as valuable as they might argue, there's no denying they do do a lot of work for the customer that is outside the scope of placing an insurance policy. Claims and risk management are valuable to the client for certain. The problem is that the broker would argue these are also services to the insurance company. As these brokers get bigger, they get more diverse, and less and less of their core business is the placing of insurance business. I think the bigger question comes back to what these brokers actually do and how that affects their relationship with insurance companies and whether that relationship becomes problematic. I think the larger picture on contingent commissions is a question about how brokers get paid by insurance companies currently and whether or not the financial relationships between brokers and insurance companies can cause a conflict of interest. Brokers these days don't just place insurance for customers, they do a lot of other things. Marsh, for example, does three main things. They're an insurance brokerage, they have an investment arm that provides investment advice, and they offer consulting services. These different services Marsh and other brokers offer are often directed at insurance companies, and the result is more money paid by the insurance companies to the brokers. For example, 
brokers place reinsurance or finite insurance for insurance companies, and they get the commission for that placement. Those are important insurance policies, and insurance companies can't just go anywhere to get that done these days. You're pretty much stuck with large brokers as your intermediary. Insurance companies hire brokers as consultants in many different ways as well. Maybe your insurance company wants some data that the brokers have and you think might be useful for your business, or you want them to provide analytics for your data. Maybe you want to contract with a broker's in-house security specialist for a project. Maybe you want to sell a type of insurance you've never sold before, but the broker has people who can help you build a business plan and provide the knowledge you need to create this new department. All of these are things the insurance company can pay the broker to come in and do for them, with the appropriate contract and payment, of course. Yes, they do quite a bit of work for this, and they deserve to be compensated, but it contributes to a kind of dense entanglement that could be used by bad actors to pressure insurance companies in ways that might be a bit questionable. Not to mention, insurance brokers like Marsh invest in insurance companies. Marsh's investment arm, MMC, had significant investments in 12 insurance companies at the time of the Spitzer investigation, and that included Ace Capital, the company that was run by Evan Greenberg, brother of the Marsh CEO, Jeff Greenberg. And many of MMC's executives sit on the boards of these various insurance companies. Aon and Willis do this too. And this brings me to the biggest problem Spitzer didn't address and that no one seems to want to address. All of these insurance companies and brokers are very, very intimately connected from a personnel standpoint in a way that suggests that contingent commissions are a symptom of what could be an even larger problem. For example, the head of AIG during this time was Maurice Greenberg. His son, Evan Greenberg, was the head of ACE, a competing insurance company. His other son, Jeffrey Greenberg, was the head of Marsh, the world's largest broker. Yes, these three men are related, but even more importantly in some ways, they had very close relationships from an employment perspective. Both Evan and Jeffrey had worked for AIG for years before moving to the brokerage world. The issue is just not limited to the Greenberg family. It is all over the industry. People move from broker to insurance company and back again with alarming regularity, especially in higher roles. I think there can be a conflict of interest as a result. Of course, probably part of the reason Spitzer didn't bring this up is he was part of it as well. The people who work in the Manhattan DA and the state's attorney's office did the same thing. When Spitzer started investigating the brokers and insurance companies, many of the members of legal counsel for those companies were people Spitzer had worked with in the past or, in one instance, were people he had reported to. Cherkasky became the head of Marsh. Lloyd Constantine was hired as head of Aon's legal outside counsel. The head of Marsh's internal investigation had worked with Spitzer at the Manhattan DA's office, too. I bring this up in part because... There is this perception within insurance that the insurance world is very small. And yet, the industry employs over 2 million people in the United States alone. It's not small. The group of people who get to be in charge, that's small. But not because there's a lack of people in the industry. The upper tiers of insurance management are exclusive, and it's a problem. So, when a broker or an insurance company says, That's just the way it's always been done. I kind of laugh. 
And if they say that they need outside blood because the insurance industry is so small, I also laugh. Because in this case, they did bring in people who had no insurance experience to head some of these companies. Again, as if there was simply no one else. And I would have thought that bringing in some of these people who had no idea what insurance norms were or the whole, you know, it's just the way we do things here, and that they would have said, well, then let's change it. But they didn't. And there was really no reason they couldn't, except money. The long-term implications of this investigation were tempered by Spitzer's election to governor. As governor, Spitzer almost immediately ran into scandal. And after two years, he resigned after it was revealed he had been hiring prostitutes for sex. The scandal didn't quite bring his prior investigations into doubt, but it certainly didn't help how they were perceived by the public. And since he was no longer attorney general, the industries and companies he'd gone after were working quietly behind the scenes to undo the things that his office had done. The insurance industry was no different. When Spitzer was elected governor, he left the AG's office and frankly left a lot of this investigation without real completion. Sure, the industry ended up paying about $3 billion in restitution, including what was paid by companies in other states. Without Spitzer to drive the New York investigation, it was bound to fizzle a little, but I'm left with a feeling that it just petered out. Coming into this, I had an inherent bias against the people who were convicted, probably because whenever the investigation came up in conversation, brokers inevitably took a, they were totally innocent, it was a witch hunt position, without any gray area, and I just struggled to believe that. But as I was researching this episode, I was left with a couple of real issues that suggest that my bias was wrong. First, I don't think there was any kind of overwhelming evidence that contingent commissions hurt customers. And this really wasn't something I thought I would say. I do wonder if Spitzer's MO of getting companies to the table quickly for settlement and to force industry changes meant there was more concrete industry-wide evidence of bid rigging or steering or pay-to-play that just wasn't uncovered. From the beginning of the investigation to the final settlement, it was about a year. That's not very long. Do I think that contingent commissions are bad? I think they're problematic. And because of that, they shouldn't be industry practice. If brokers feel their existing compensation structure is unfair, then change that. Don't add on another type of compensation structure like contingent commissions that causes more issues. Next, Spitzer's team seemed to have totally missed or completely ignored that, at least in Marsh's case, any pattern of these behaviors was limited to one group within Marsh, the Global Brokering Group. And if Spitzer was so interested in taking down problematic industry practices, he probably should have honed in on the compensation strategy Marsh had set up for individual brokers within the Global Brokering Group that encouraged bad behavior. Believe it or not, The sole way that brokers within the global brokering group got paid was by contingent commission dollars. The normal commission on the premiums for any account they placed went to another department. With that knowledge, is it any surprise that the bid rigging happened? Clearly, all that nonsense about a Chinese wall between the people who worked on getting contingent commission contracts with insurers and the brokers who actually sold insurance, that was a lot of hooey. I'm so curious what Marsh thought would happen setting it up that way. Was bid rigging a bug or a feature? Knowing insurance, I suspect it was an unintended consequence of people not thinking things through, but boy, was that a terrible decision. Most problematic for me, 
is the way that individual employees for all of these companies were treated, both by Spitzer and by those companies themselves. Because of the drop in share price, Marsh ended up laying off about 3,000 people. I think you can make the argument that had Marsh been a little more conciliatory towards Spitzer, that might not have happened. I think that's on Marsh and not the investigation. Spitzer, for his part, was focused on getting the deal done. And I don't think he had any compunction about charging employees at the brokerages and insurance companies with crimes as a lever to get the companies to come to the table. I'm not sure why he thought a broker or insurance company wouldn't sacrifice an employee to get out of a legal situation that could cost a lot of money. A number of people pled guilty pretty much immediately, and Spitzer blasted those people's names all over the press. Some people were charged and fought their charges, but again, their names were very public. But then, those employees were left without resolution of those results of their plea deals or charges for years. Not surprisingly, those people were unable to work in the industry while the charges were pending, and maybe after, too, even if they were found innocent. One employee at Zurich who had pled guilty to a misdemeanor had to take Spitzer to court just to get some kind of resolution to his situation. That resolution turned out to be probation and community service, which just... That just sucks that it took taking the state to court to get that finalized. Very few people went to jail. White-collar crimes don't often lead to long jail sentences. A lot of the people who were found guilty in the court system then had their convictions overturned years later, but their careers were completely ruined. I do think some of these people committed illegal acts. But generally speaking, I'm not convinced in these types of corporate fraud cases that the right people ever get prosecuted. All of the people who pled guilty or were convicted were in executive roles with the titles of AVP or higher, so you could assume they were the people making the decisions to do the illegal acts themselves and that the executives higher up may have had no knowledge. But it's important not to take from their job titles that those people were ultimately in charge. Titles in insurance can vary widely. A VP or AVP at one company can be much higher up in the management ladder than another. It's a trend that seems to have exponentially expanded in the last 10 years. Who was ultimately responsible for this bad behavior? I don't think Spitzer's team ever figured that out in their haste to get things done. Spitzer may have gotten Jeffrey Greenberg booted from the CEO role at Marsh, but he never seemed to take charging Greenberg criminally very seriously. In that aspect, I do believe these employees got screwed. Why did these companies and the employees who participated think that bid rigging and steering was acceptable business practice? I think it was partly the pressure to make money. The insurance industry can be just as ruthless as the financial services industry in that respect. But insurance has no real rule book, not in the same way that other industries like law or accounting have. Industry practices have developed over time and are generally not written down. There's no federal oversight of insurance. Instead, we have 50 different states telling us what is acceptable and what is not. Learning to be a broker or an insurance underwriter isn't something you can really learn in school. You have to learn it on the job. Sure, you can take insurance classes in college, and they are valuable, but it does not prepare you in almost any way for the actual day-to-day -day duties of your career. Twenty years ago, insurance companies used to have formal training programs for underwriters. I don't know about brokers, sadly. But those training programs have disappeared, and they're not coming back. Insurance companies don't want to spend the money. 
they know that new employees will often leave within a few years, taking all that investment with them to another competitor. There's also a subset of insurance executives that think that technology will make it possible for all of these jobs to be done with people with little or no knowledge, and therefore the money flows into those initiatives and not the people. Not surprisingly, I disagree greatly with that assessment. So, Anyone joining the industry has to learn from their peers and their bosses how to do their jobs and what is appropriate and inappropriate within the industry. What those people think is appropriate in legal behavior may not be accurate. Those of us who are in the industry and have been for years, we also take some blame. We simply accept standard industry practice without actually thinking about the ethical implications of those practices. The Spitzer investigation was almost 20 years ago, and we've made little or no progress on examining our practices. Couple that with an industry where the higher-ups move from company to company, from broker to insurance company and back again, this small club of people who all know each other and in some cases directly try to relate to each other. I'm not sure we can change industry standard practice without re-examining that as well. There are a lot of really good people in insurance working in the trenches, who might affect major change for the good of the industry who just never get the chance. So, now we're 17 years out from the investigation, and what's changed? Not much. Contingent commissions are back, and, to be honest, they were really only banned for the big three brokers and a handful of others. The 10-year agreement for Marsh, Willis, and Aon to halt contingent commissions that was signed in 2005 was overturned in 2010. Marsh, Ann, and Willis started pursuing contingent commissions again, though Willis, to their credit, held off for a few years and tried to make their lack of contingent commission agreements a selling point to customers and insurance companies. Today, contingent commissions aren't industry-wide, or at least that's been my experience, but they do exist. How did brokers make up all that lost revenue? They found a way. Marsh actually grew after contingent commissions were banned and their profits went up. Brokers bought other smaller brokers, they expanded their business offerings to insurance companies and clients, including selling data to insurance companies. They did fine. Spitzer, after resigning from the governorship, tried to be a pundit for a while, but these days he keeps an extremely low profile as a real estate developer. Jeffrey Greenberg went on to start his own private capital company, so he's not done too badly. Hopefully, all those employees who were charged or pled guilty went on to other careers where they always question industry practice before doing things. It's a bit of a letdown, right? I wonder if Spitzer still feels the same way about what he accomplished. From the insurance versus history standpoint, again, insurance obliterated history here. While people within the industry remember this incident well, it changed almost nothing, and pretty much everything Spitzer did has been undone. On the history side, Spitzer's tenure as New York Attorney General brought that role into the national spotlight as a politician who would investigate things that could be considered national or even federal, unafraid to take on really big cases or big companies, or, in the case of Letitia James, a former president. Whatever else, Spitzer can take credit for that, I suppose. So, when you hear about the next thing the New York AG is taking on, you can remember how Spitzer started it all. Thanks for listening. Show notes and a list of sources and additional reading suggestions can be found on my website, which is linked in the show description on your podcast player. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your preferred platform to be notified of new episodes as soon as they drop. And let other people know about the podcast by spreading the word. 
Join me over on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and tell me your thoughts about the podcast episode or insurance history in general. I'd love to hear them. Make sure to use the hashtag insurancevshistory so I can find it. My social media is linked in the show description in your podcast player as well, so give me a shout. And remember, be safe, be smart, and read your policy wording. Thank you.